All right, open door tonight. Uh, last week was kind of the soft launch of our summer learning journey. Tonight is the full-on launch of our summer learning journey together. Uh, it's going to take us all the way through the summer, and this is a journey called Pirate and Salt, Constructing a Life Stronger Than Death. Uh, when I say pirate, what comes to mind? All right, we just got that one out there right away. Thank you. I say pirate, you say? Arr, no, arr, pirate, arr, no. um, Who comes to mind? What comes to mind? Visual, ships. Jolly Roger. Jack Sparrow. Casey Jackson comes to mind for Nick. You're pointing, oh, you have, you just, I, I, something happened and I should have just ignored it. Uh, when I say pirate, what comes to mind? Stealing. Stealing. Great, throw it out there. Are pirates good or bad when you think about pirates? Good or bad? Not good, bad. So there's all kinds of different thoughts on pirates. Um, we'll, we'll figure out what, what angle we're taking, but good or bad, I don't know. You'll just have to come back every week to find out if it's a good week, bad week for the pirates uh, at Open Door. Pirate insult, uh, constructing a life stronger than death. Um, at Open Door, over the last uh, few years, over the last decade or so, we've talked a lot about how, how most of the times our imagination for life is shaped by the seeming inevitability of death. So we think of life as linear, as finite, with a start point and an end point. So you, like, you get busy living or you get busy dying. Those are the two choices that we feel like we're given. Um, these, these two inevitabilities before us. There's the beginning of life and then there's the end of life, which happens at death. Um, Jesus throws kind of a a wrench-like variable into the simple, linear, finite equation of life as we know it. Uh, From the very beginning of Jesus' ministry, as soon as he comes onto the scene, he speaks about life in a more complicated and nuanced and beautiful way than just a simple, linear piece of life and death. He talks about the abundance of life in God's kingdom, that life to the full, or life eternal, was and is available to everyone and anyone. And, and when Jesus talked about life to the full, this eternal life, this wasn't a far-off promise of like someday, somewhere, somehow, for some people, this abundant life in God's kingdom will happen. But it, but it was like something that was available in the here and now. When Jesus talked about life, he was talking about life today for you and for me, for us here together in this place, for the places that Jesus found himself. Life was available now. It was close to people. It was accessible. Jesus would say that life with God or life in God's kingdom is as, is as close as water in a cup that we might be holding. It's like right there in our midst. It's within our reach. It's within our grasp. Life with God is within our grasp. That's when Jesus was alive and teaching. And then Jesus died, but then he walked out of the tomb that he was buried in. So Jesus invited people into a life stronger than death while he was alive And then he was killed and started breathing again, unleashing into a world that for too long had been shaped by an imagination for life that was limited by death. Jesus unleashed a new imagination, resurrection, the possibilities of a life stronger than death. Not a life limited by death, but a life stronger than death. Resurrection complicates things in beautiful ways. The world is messier and more wondrous as we move from this simple dichotomy between life and death into the potential 
and vibrancy and nuance that resurrection throws into the mix. So the next few weeks, which is like the first leg of our pirate journey, uh, we're going to be looking at some of the post-resurrection stories of Jesus, seeing like what are the things that Jesus did after he started breathing again? How did he interact with his friends and his followers, his disciples, the early communities gathering around Jesus? How did Jesus interact with them? What did he invite them into after this person, guy who was dead, started breathing again? What was that like? What were those early communities, those early stories of of what um, Jesus did after his resurrection? Um, Tonight we're going to start in the Gospel of Mark. Uh, The last bit of Mark's Gospel, starting in chapter 16, is like one of my favorite of these collection of post-resurrection stories. So we're starting there, just because it's my favorite. Um, And I get to decide these things. So we're going to start in Mark chapter 16 and read uh, verses 1 through 8. Probably in your Bible, um, there's a bunch more verses after that, but there's also a note that says the earliest manuscripts end at verse 8. So we're going to stop at verse 8 for our purposes tonight. So here are these words from Mark chapter 16, verses 1 through 8, the last uh, section of the gospel. This is how the good news of Jesus in Mark ended. When the Sabbath was over... Mary Magdalene and Mary, the mother of James, and Salome brought spices so that they might go to anoint Jesus' body. Very early on, the first day of the week, just after sunrise, they were on the way to the tomb, and they asked each other, who will roll the stone away from the entrance of the tomb? But when they looked up, they saw that the stone, which was very large, had been rolled away. As they entered the tomb, they saw a young man dressed in a white robe sitting on the right side, and they were alarmed. Don't be alarmed, he said. You're looking for Jesus, the Nazarene, who was crucified, but he has risen. He is not here. See the place where they laid him. But go, tell his disciples and Peter, he is going ahead of you into Galilee. There you will see him just as he told you. Trembling and bewildered, the women went out and fled from the tomb. They said nothing to anyone because they were afraid. And that's how the good news of Jesus told by Mark ends for the earliest readers. Um, We had a conversation with Justin McRoberts last week about bodies and why bodies matter, particularly in light of the resurrection. Um, These women were heading to the tomb to do something very specific, to care for the body of Jesus because bodies matter. Uh, but something stood in the way for them. And as they go, they, they are talking with one another, and they name it. What's the thing that stands in the way? But their mission, their, their job, their calling right now is to go care for the body of Jesus. But they name something standing in the way. What's in the way? A stone. Is it a small stone? No. It's a large stone. And if you look back a little bit in chapter 15, it says this guy named Joseph rolled the stone down. But... What probably happened is that Joseph was like, the stone was up on a hill, and, and the dude Joseph like, came up and like, pushed the stone, so the stone rolled down the hill. And it's like, that's something that we, we could all push a stone down a hill. That's like, the gravity is working in your favor, and you're like, going to push a stone down the hill. Now the stone is down in place. They did that so that the stones wouldn't be able to move later. So that you can roll a stone down a hill. So we might be thinking, like, why couldn't they move it? Is it... Because like, there were three of them, why couldn't they push the stone up the hill? It's like one guy could roll it down a hill, but like, this stone is so big it's not rolling down the hill. So this stone stands in the way of them and what they were going to do. There's this insurmountable obstacle blocking their way forward. And yet, these women know that the stone is there. They know that it's too big for them to move, and they go 
anyway. They go anyway. They go forward in faith. They go forward in trust. They go forward because they loved Jesus. They go in the confidence that a way will be opened up even if they don't know what that way might look like. And they ask this question of each other. Who will roll away the stone? Who will roll away that stone that's standing in between them and caring for the body of Jesus? Who is going to roll away the stone? Um, Albert Schweitzer was a, is kind of a, he's a doctor, he was a missionary, he was a theologian. Um, he says that our whole human predicament can be summed up with that question. Who's going to roll away the stone? This thing that lies before us that is insurmountable, no one can do, who's going to do it? Who's going to roll away the stone? We live in this world of insurmountable obstacles, seemingly like followed up by other insurmountable obstacles. Who's going to roll away the stone? Climate crisis, mass incarceration, seemingly never-ending debates about how to uphold the sanctity and dignity of life. Wars that go on and on and on. Not enough homes for humans. Racial injustices that are perpetuated across generation and generation. Who will roll away the stone? We live in a world where a message of very good news is increasingly heard as very bad news. Who's going to roll away the stone? This is a question to wrestle with, not just for for Mary and Mary and Salome, but for us, for for all of us across time. Who's going to roll away the stone? It's a question to wrestle with. It's a question to be, like, troubled by, to be disturbed by. Who's going to roll away the stone? An insurmountable thing that lies before us. Who's going to roll away the stone? Kester Bruin um, is a guy, he's from London. Uh, He's a math teacher by day and kind of a subversive philosopher, theologian by night. Um, And he wrote a book about pirates. Um, And Kester Bruin, in his book about pirates, he says this, pirates emerge whenever economies become blocked. Pirates emerge whenever an economy is blocked. Um, So he he says uh, that uh, pirates are an indication that a system or a community or a way of doing things is in trouble. Something's in trouble. There's a system that's in trouble. Something that was to be a common good available to everyone has become restricted and locked up for the benefit of a few, often at the painful expense of the many. Something that was supposed to be the common good has become restricted and unavailable, inaccessible to the many. For the longest times, oceans were seen as this deep unknown, Boundaries that restricted the movement of people and goods and ideas. In the earliest Hebrew scriptures, there's this word tohom, which just means deep. And they're talking about the chaos of the oceans. It's just the tohom. It goes on and on and on. It's the deep. It's the chaos. It's the unknown. In some ways, oceans were a great equalizer for communities across the world. They provided a constant in cultural and social evolution of people. But at some point in history, the oceans opened up. All of a sudden, they became accessible. They became traversable. Uh, one of the first times it happened was with the Roman Empire. Um, so they like, had conquered all this land, and they said, well, what's next? Uh, no one can cross these seas. No one can cross these oceans, but we are Rome. Uh, we can do that. We can conquer this space. We can take over the ocean. So they were the first to try and control waterways um, at the level that they did. And they, what they essentially did was they essentially privatized and commodified and militarized what was previously this great equalizer, the shared resource that was available for everyone. 
And people stood up and kind of stood in their way. And anyone who stood in the way of Rome trying to commodify and militarize um, the oceans, Rome had a word for them. The, the word was just pirate. These people are pirates. Uh, and the Roman Empire had a few different way, things they, they said when they were talking about pirates. They said pirates are enemies of all mankind. Pirates are the very negation of imperial social order. And pirates are a wider menace that would undermine the values of empire. So we can have the, the, like the we, we, will, we will have the conversation about like pirates good or bad or pirates complicated, pirates comedy or tragedy or farce. Like we can have the conversation about pirates, but there's something about pirates that are subversive. There's something about pirates that like push beyond the status quo and challenge like the work of empire that's trying to commoditize and militarize something that used to be available to everybody. Now it's saying, let's restrict this just for a few people. And I think it's not that big of a stretch to say that when Jesus came onto the scene in first century Palestine, there was an economy that was blocked. Not just this Roman social economy, the waterways, which uh, the, the, way, the ways of Rome and the ways of empire that existed to hoard power and wealth for the elite few on the backs of the poor and the peasants. But there was a religious economy of the day when Jesus came onto the scene, a religious economy that was blocked. When Jesus started teaching, when Jesus started gathering followers around him, there were entire systems of rules and regulations and taxes and temples that had been set up to maintain a distance from God for the many, while a few religious elites would profit from the power and the privilege of serving as intermediaries between God and humans. So what used to be available for everybody had become restricted so that only a few would be able to access, so only a few could act as the intermediaries between God and humanity. So this transactional, individualistic framework was never God's intention for creation. From the very beginning of the scriptures, the structure of relationship between God and humans was organic. It was ecological. It was conversational. It was mutual. There was an invitation in the early chapters of Genesis, into a deep intimacy, into a mutual flourishing, and a co-creation of culture. God essentially said to the first humans, let's write this story together. But the first humans weren't interested in writing that story together. And instead, they grabbed the pen from God, and then they grabbed the pen from each other. And then quickly, we have a story of one human pointing a finger and blaming another human. And then right after that, we have a story of one human killing another human. And then we have a never-ending cycle of stories of humans and groups of humans setting out to seek power, subjugating and silencing and enslaving others literally and figuratively to further their own ends and to write their own story instead of co-writing, co-creating a story together with God. This economy of abundance and mutual flourishing and divine human commingling became restricted and blocked sociologically, socially, economically, religiously for the benefit of a few at the expense of the many. A cycle of death and injustice was introduced into the story and the patterns of the world. And Jesus came onto the scene and Jesus said, no more of that. We're done with that. Jesus said, woe to the rich and blessed are the poor. Woe to those who stir up violence and rely on swords and weapons and blessed are the peacemakers. 
He said there's all these rules and customs and traditions and understandings about who you should talk to and who you should share a table with. Jesus said, share tables freely and frequently. Hold parties and invite all the wrong people. There's all these rules about who, you, who you're actually obligated to care for, who your neighbor is. And Jesus said, love the neighbor that you have been trained to not even see. See that person and then love them as your neighbor. Jesus said, I invite you into life and life to the full. And it looks like these things. Blessed are the poor. Blessed are the peacemakers. Blessed are the meek. Share tables freely and frequently. Love that person who you would never even see as a human, much less a neighbor. Love that person as a neighbor. This stone in the story, uh, it's, it's very literal. It's a stone that was placed on the tomb that Jesus was buried in. But the stone and the tomb also represent like the finality of death, like the lack of imagination for anything beyond death. The victory of death over life, the inevitability of injustice, the meaninglessness of struggling against broken systems. Because who can roll away a stone like that? It's inevitable. It's meaningless to try to push against it. Gravity has got that stone in place. It's not moving anywhere. Who could roll away a stone like that? But it's as if Jesus says in this passage, I've got it taken care of. Who will roll away the stone? I will roll away the stone. Now follow me. That's literally what the people are told. The the stone is rolled away. It's been taken care of. Now follow me. And where's Jesus? He's not there with him. He's he's like already out ahead of him doing the work that he's inviting them into. I have rolled away the stone. Now come on, follow me. Let's do this. It's as if Jesus were a pirate and called a band of pirates to live life in such a way that the blocked religious economy of the day and of all days would be opened up again so that humans might live again and not just live a life defined by death or limited by death, but that humans might live a life stronger than death. And what, love, what I love about the way that Mark tells this story to end uh, the good news um, is that it begs this critical question, uh, who, who's going to roll away the stone? Will, will I follow the one who has rolled away the stone? It begs the question, and then it just leaves it there. It leaves us to answer it in our own time, in our own communities, for our own time, for our own communities. Who do we say has rolled away the stone? Do we believe the stone has been rolled away? And if so, what are we going to do about it? Will we go follow the Jesus who's out ahead, who's already out in Galilee? Who will roll away the stone? Jesus has gone ahead of you. Jesus has gone ahead of us into Galilee. Will you follow? Will you follow the one who has rolled away the stone? Will you say yes to the invitation to a stone-rolling life that is stronger than death. Um, a couple questions uh, for us to linger on. Uh, maybe make some time this week. Uh, think about these. Um, we might take a couple of minutes, and if you have any ideas, we might take a couple ideas that you might have. Uh, where is there a blocked economy, or a broken relationship, or a path filled with obstacles, an obstacled path that is restricting the flow of grace? Where are those places in the world that we live in now?
And then we're a community who trusts that the stone has been rolled away. Life is stronger than death. But there are some remnants of the stones that remain in the world that we live in. What does it look like for us, for you, to chisel away at the remnants of the stones that remain? And this week, how are you going to do it? So where is there a blocked economy, broken relationship, obstacled path that restricts the flow of grace? Do you trust that the stone has been rolled away? And what will you do to take your part and chisel away the remnants of that stone?